Welcome to Centre Church. We hope you enjoy this message recorded live from our Burgess Hill campus. So, if some of you were here a few weeks ago, you, I, you would have heard me share on a message called First Things First. I shared from uh, the prophet Haggai, who had a message for the Israelites. And he um, brought a message that I thought was very poignant for us as a church as well. um, I shared how we need to recognize what we're neglecting. Neglecting in our walk with God, both personally, individually, but also collectively as a church, to identify those conflicts of interests that get in the way, that's, that prevent us from drawing near to him. But then how that also leads us into obedience, how to obey God and follow him faithfully. Robin, the following week, he uh, uh, continued the thought process on first things first, sharing how we must choose whom we will serve. Are we just serving ourselves, relying on our own uh, capabilities, which in themselves are limited? Or do we serve the one and trust the one who he himself is unlimited? Now, inadvertently, this, under no thought of my own, has actually turned into a little bit of a series. And over these upcoming weeks, we are going to be, in between other, other speakers, delving back into this thought process of first things first, key spiritual disciplines and other things that we need to put first. Maybe things that we have neglected, or maybe there's a conflict with which we need to look at and see how we can apply back into our lives and walk with God. Now, what I'm sharing on this morning may be regarded as a natural fit for me because I'm going to be looking at worship. Um, But looking at a specific angle that I know will be if we're honest, challenging for us all, because I know it's challenging for me. And so I've entitled this, First Things First, A Genuine Heart of Worship. Now, there are, if you look it up, numerous definitions of worship. You can, as Samantha shared last week, you can Google things, you can look it up, you can look in a dictionary, and I, I know that as a church, as a whole, collectively around the world, we say we're going to have times of worship. And it can be linked to music and song. But this is just one expression of what worship can look like. Now, the modern understanding of worship comes from an old English word, which is worth-ship. We identify and understand God's value and worth. And so it's a declaration of this. Now, again, I know if you were here last week, Samantha says she doesn't doesn't go into the Greek. I've got a treat for you. I'm going to delve into the Greek. Oh, Oh, yes. Only because I know it. (laughs) Know this one in particular because I've looked at it. Now, in in the New Testament, the word is, and it should come up in the next slide, proskuneo. And it's a compound word, and it's made up of two parts. Pros, which is like towards, or the bow down before. And then you've got the second part, which is kineo, which is a kiss, or kissing towards. 
And so collectively, the understanding is it's a bowing down before and a kiss towards God as an act of dependency on who he is. If you were to, to be living in that time that even the Israelites were living in, of course, there were many different kings. And as an act of declaration of dependency on the king, you'll see the servants bowing down before their king's throne, kissing, maybe even kissing his feet or bowing towards him as an act of dependency. And so that is our worship to God, is that we're declaring our dependency on him and who he is. In truth, though, I think worship as a whole is actually difficult to define. Because it is a defined encounter with an infinite God. And so worship, I think, is as infinite as the God whom we serve. There are so many ways we can worship him. Morris Smith says that real worship defies definitions. It can only be experienced. And so instead of being a discussion, there's so many. If you look, and look up worship books, there are so many books on worship, different, different angles of it. And it can often be a discussion on worship. But I think really at its heart, it's communion. It's communion with God, a relationship with God experienced by his loved ones. Now, I'm sure minds are in this room maybe wondering, okay, we understand, Tom, now where are you going with this? Where are we going to look in scripture? And I know that there are some great passages within the word of God that really express worship. We can look at potentially David dancing before the Lord. I've often wondered what was the dance he was doing before the Lord? What was the moves at the time? That was an act of worship. We have our own. But what did David do in that time? You can even think about the woman that came into as Jesus was with other people in a house and she poured perfume, expensive perfume over Jesus. That's a, such an amazing act of worship. Potentially, we could look at the sick, sick woman who pushed through the crowds just for a touch of Jesus because she knew a touch from Jesus was all that she needed to meet her needs. We can even look at Mary and Martha, Mary who was at the feet of Jesus while Martha was just busy trying to get everything ready and frustrated at Mary for not helping, yet Mary had done what was right to just be at the feet of Jesus. I'm not going to look at any of these. That was a prelude, wasn't it? I may link them in, but that's not where I'm going today. I'm going to be looking at David, but I'm actually going to be looking at David at probably more or less his worst, so that we can understand and learn how we can worship God with our best. And similarly to Haggai, there's a huge chunk of passage, like I shared with Haggai, there's a huge bunch of passage here that I'm going to read through, but I'm going to read it in parts, and it's going to form the parts of our message today. And so if you've got your Bibles, it will come up behind me. We're going to turn to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter 12. We're going to read from verses 1 to 10, but, and then also move on to verse 13 in this first section. And just to give the background before we read it, 
David had sinned before the Lord. He had been walking across the rooftops and he had eyed up Bathsheba across the way who was bathing. I, made them, I say made the mistake in the past. I've shared on this, uh, a passage on David and Bathsheba in the past before and I said, I always like to put myself in the place of the people so I can understand what they're going through. But in that situation, it's probably not a wise thing to put myself in David's shoes, to be walking across the rooftops and gazing across the way and looking at a beautiful woman bathing. Probably not right for me to do that. But anyway, David had committed adultery with this woman and also had her husband killed. And so this is the aftermath of that situation. So we read, The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over, because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all of this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with a sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword would never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Nathan then proceeds to read out the consequences of David's actions, to which in verse 13, David finally says, I have sinned before the Lord. Now we know David has been regarded as a man after God's own heart. And his passion for God which had attracted all of Israel to follow him as a leader, had now become compromised. Instead of living fervently for God, he allowed other desires, he allowed other wants to draw his attention, to draw his focus. And this, in turn, affected his posture in worship to God because it had become distorted. Now, to help us understand this, I'm gonna, I've got a little bit of an example for you, but I need a volunteer. I need a willing volunteer. If no one comes forward, I shall pick you out, and you will not like me for that. So I'm going to give it just a second. Anyone want to come, be bold and come up on stage for just a minute? I'm looking at the IBTI students here. <laughs> Davide, thank you. Come on. Now, if you would be so kind, I can move this over a little bit. Just stand here, face our lovely 
I'm going to leave the stage now. Because <laughs> I've brought a bag of tricks with me. Or should I say, a bag of hobbies. A hobby of mine. Now, Davide, I want you to do what you normally do when you have a camera in your face. What would you do? <laughs> Beautiful. You know, give me a little bit more. Yeah? Yes, that's it. Go on. Let's get you one with everybody in the, in the congregation here. Look at this. This is beautiful. Everyone, everyone, what do you do? Fantastic. That's all I need you for, but I, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Beautiful. I'll upload these online later, and you can, you can uh, enjoy them at your own heart's content. What was Davide doing? Say it a little bit louder, sorry. Posing. Yes, he was posing. When someone has his or her picture taken, we say he or she poses. Right? Camera goes in the face, instantly you're like... <laughs> yes. Normal response, right? Sometimes they try to look their best when the camera's put in their face. Or, if you're like me, you try and look as silly as you can. There are many photos which I know are going to haunt me for life of me in the back of people who are lovely, smiling in the camera, and I'm behind them going, like this, all this. Now, the thing is, all jokes aside, when the camera disappears, often so does the smile. And it's the same with our worship. We can subconsciously project out what we think others expect to see, see of us or to hear of us. That's actually hiding the reality of what's actually in our hearts and minds. Some of us may adopt a pose, maybe because we're fearful of being caught out. I don't want to show that maybe I'm struggling or maybe my faith is a bit weak at the moment or I'm going through a hard time. We don't want to show our weakness and vulnerability, so we adopt a pose. Yet, all of us, we must recognize that all of us are incomplete. We all need God, and we all need each other. Now, Jesus said this. He, he argued against the Pharisees. He, he, brought, he said to them, it's in Matthew 15, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. And sometimes it's the same with us. We may know how to worship, but we're not present. We can act it out, but we're not there. And I think and I believe that God just wants us to come to him, blemishes and all. Yet, we can strike a pose directly towards God in our worship of him. Our hearts and minds not truly engaging, but perhaps distracted by other things going on in our lives. True, genuine worship, I believe, is a recognition of God who is great and loving. We are dependent on God for all things. 
Paul stated this to the church in Corinth. He said, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. Expand that. Everything we need comes from him. He is our strength. He is our security. He is the peacemaker. He is the waymaker. We sing that song. And I believe that if God were to see our pose, if, he, if we were standing before God in worship and we were not present and we were maybe striking a pose, doing what we thought, think it we need to just do, just because it's like, I'm just, I'm just going to do it, I think maybe God would say to us, my child, drop the facade, which is the front, drop the mask, just come to me as you are. If we hide behind a pose, we are inadvertently stating or projecting out that we don't need God. We're not admitting our need for him. We're not admitting our dependency. As I, as I showed you with that Greek word, that coming before him, bowing to, before him, is a showing our dependencies on him and him alone. Now, of course, I said I would revert to some of the examples I shared at the start of this message. You've got that sick woman. In Luke 8, she was fearful of what the crowd might think of her, this woman that has struggled so much. Yet she dared to be open in admitting her need for Jesus. She broke through the crowd just for one touch. And when suddenly Jesus realizes the power left him, she said, around, who touched me? And the woman were coward. Everyone could see her. The whole crowd could see her. So did Jesus. Yet she was bold enough to admit, I just, knew, I just needed to touch you. Just one touch. And her faith healed her. Her need was met because she was bold enough to, in an, an act of worship to show her dependency on God. Now when we look at David to so many people, he was an example of godly leadership. He appeared to be a faithful servant of God, of God. Yet in reality, following this situation, his pose was hiding the real picture. From being a man after God's own heart, his worship, his life of obedience had actually fallen into disarray. Almost like he had forgotten the God that he was serving. And the question for us all is, what is our pose before God? Are we merely, merely going through the motions, but not truly engaging? Now, we're going to carry on with this encounter. We're going to read from verses 15 to 19. Again, it will come up behind me. So after Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him the child was dead, for they thought, while the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized the child was dead. Is the child dead, he asked. Yes, they replied. 
he's dead. Now the focus here is really how David responded, not only to Nathan's sharing that story at the start, because you know when David shared, when Nathan shared with David, David's response was anger. He had anger towards the man that Nathan was describing, not realizing that Nathan was talking about him. And so also in this situation, as you look at what the serpents say, he may do something desperate. It reveals a lot about David's character, what I believe, how far he had fallen in his faith. And so for us, when we come before God, I think it's important that we move by faith. Second point, we move by faith rather than emotion. David's faith, his seal for God, had wavered. He had followed his own desires in pursuit of Bathsheba. And if you look through that chapter which describes that encounter, he doesn't involve God in the process at all. And I think if he had approached God, when he had seen Bathsheba across the way and actually gone directly to God, I think he would have been conflicted and he wouldn't have followed through with his own desires. He responds in anger to Nathan's story and resorted to pleads before God in the face of discipline and loss, then reverent faith. When we come to worship, I think, and I know I speak to myself because I've had to learn this, the hard way, that our feelings and emotions can dictate our actions. But our emotions are inconsistent. In one moment, we can be angry. Oh, I don't like this person. And in the next moment, we'll be like, oh, they're not too bad. They're all right. It can change. Like the wind, it can change suddenly. And worship is so much more than a feeling of euphoria though we can often go in search of it, in pursuit of that. Now, early on in my faith, I was, I think I'd just given my life to God, and it was just, I think the summer later, Joy will remember this, we went to a camp called River Camp. Yes, you remember that? Um, group of us, a youth at the time, and some from church who went to this camp. Great, it was like preluding soul survivor, I think it was a, tent marquee, speakers, worship, everything. And I remember one night there was this moment of like, we're going to encounter the Holy Spirit, it's going to move, and I was looking around, there's people on the floor, there's people hands in the air, praising God, and I was there like, I don't feel anything. And I was getting so frustrated, and I was getting so disappointed because I, I don't feel anything. And I remember going back to our campsite, and one of uh, the youth who was a good friend of mine, she was like, Tom, what's up? What's wrong? I was like, I, I just disappointed. I just, I didn't feel God. I didn't feel anything in that meeting. Now, her response, you may think is brutal, but it's absolutely true. She replied with one word, so. Now, for me, that was like, oh, you don't care. <laughs> but it's true what she was saying. So, you don't feel God doesn't mean he's not moving. Doesn't mean he's not present. Doesn't mean he's not, not acting in another way or doing something within you. You may not feel it, but doesn't mean he's not there. It 
It's so much more than getting those shivers down the spine or the rise and fall in music that can often bring about an emotional response. I'm very wary of that, being myself on stage with music, that music can often induce an emotional response. And so it's important for ourselves that lead us in these times of song that we are leading as examples of worshippers before God, truly. And we're not trying to induce emotion, we're trying to write, build up faith in God through the words that we're proclaiming and declaring in song. In John 4, verses 23 to 24, Jesus was with a Samaritan woman at a well, and he said these words, Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and truth. In this moment, Jesus revealed that our worship goes beyond mere ritual. That happens on certain days. Remember, he was still in that Old Testament period at the time where they would do sacrifices, they would go to the temple. But rather, he was saying, there is a time you can meet with God now, and it's coming, and it is now here where you can meet with him anywhere. David was under the old law. His worship was a series of outward ceremonies. That was the culture he was part of. It was outward ceremonies that did not necessarily have to involve the hearts. You would do these things, you can participate, but they were just ritual. Again, I would say it was a posture. Now, Jesus has made a way where we can come before him with an upright expression of the heart, where we can commune with him anytime, anywhere. You don't have to just be here. This is important, right? Church is important. We can edify one another in faith, in truth, and love, being community together. But if we're just holding out for Sunday to meet with God, We've missed the truth of what Jesus said because we can meet with him Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. As soon as we wake up, we can meet with God and commune with him. Over lunch, in conversation, we can meet with God anytime, anywhere. That's the beauty of our relationship. What Jesus has done on the cross, he's made a new way where we don't just have to go to the temple to meet with him in spirit. We can meet with him anywhere. It's such a beautiful truth and reality we live in. And I want to focus on that truth part that Jesus said. We will worship him in spirit and truth. When Jesus spoke of this, he meant that worship must involve the mind. Worship that involves only spirit is insufficient. The mind must also be exerted. Like I said, we can fall foul to wanting these floaty feelings in our worship experience with God, yet genuine worship involves us exerting our minds. That's knowing his word, knowing the truth of what, who God is, what the word declares of him, and believing in it, holding on to it. And it requires faith over emotion to believe the things you read in the word of God. The danger is we can swing to the other side of the pendulum and we can know the word of God, but it doesn't excite us anymore. Now, there's passages I know that we can read. I've done it. I've read passages in scripture 
And it can be sometimes fall stale because we've heard them so many times. It's like the words that said, trust the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. He will make your path straight. And there have been times when I've caught myself saying, yeah, cool, yeah, amen. It's gone in a flash. I've not engaged. I've not truly understand what, it, what it's saying. He will make your path straight. He will never leave you nor forsake you. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It can be a roll of the tongue first, but it holds so much truth and meaning. The word of God should excite us, should bring out passion within us, should, should bring out that excitement of all who God is, that we cannot but worship him with all that we are. And I look at David... And I look at him in this situation, and I'm like, David, where's your zeal for God? Where's your faith? Where's your passion? See, the genuineness of true worship is evidence in the heart. It comes from the inside out. And I believe that David had lost that. And it's a question for us, how do we approach God? Do we approach him in anger, in rage, in frustration, in emotion? Or do we approach him despite everything with faith and trust? Because we know who God is. We know he is sovereign. He is Lord of Lords, King of Kings. Just to bring us on to the final point. In verse 20 of 2 Samuel, we read, after he had heard the news, David got up from the ground. After he had washed put on the lotions and changed his clothes. He went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house and at his request they served him food and he ate it. For us, the final point is to choose to engage. David here is an example. Even though he must be filled with grief, with anger, maybe with resentment, with pain, both at his own actions and maybe at God. He gets up, cleans himself, changes clothes, and he chooses to worship God. In spite of the terrible cost he has paid, he chooses to worship. He had come to realize the error of his way, his sin, and he admitted that. And Alex shared a great message a couple of weeks ago about the importance of repentance. The consequence for David's action, if you realize what he had done, committed adultery, killed a man, his consequence was that he should have died for his actions. It was death. <coughs> but in this situation, he was disciplined through the death of his son. And his, his response was to re-engage with God, to come back to him and worship. Now, Bob Sorge says this about worship. He says, worship can happen when we are in our darkest hour and we affirm God's sovereignty regardless of our circumstances. Even in the most devastating of circumstances and situations, the true Worshipper is revealed in how they respond to God. David made a choice, 
And each and every day we make a choice. Do we engage with God or do we choose not to? Martin Saunders says, worship isn't just something we do, it's something we decide to do. It's a choice. David's worship consisted of him submitting to God's will and not becoming bitter or retaliatory over what he had experienced. It's so easy to direct our anger towards God when in truth we can often be the cause of the hardships and the disciplines that we experience because we've not listened to him in the first place. We tried to go our own way. God is daily drawing us to him, daily. He is constantly calling us to him. You know what? I read somewhere that David, uh, that God doesn't actually need our worship, but we need to worship him. It's we are made to worship him because we realize how much we depend on him, how much we need him. Worship is so much more, as I said at the start, than singing songs. It's abiding by God's word. It's praying. It's a thousand tiny moments in our everyday life. Every part of that can be an act of worship to God. How we speak, how we act. Even formal acts like coming to Sunday services require us to make a choice whether or not we're going to engage. Are we passive? Are we active? Are we simply reading the words of the songs on the screens whilst our brain is disengaged? Or, or are we actually taking in what we're singing? Are we actually taking in what we're hearing? Are we actually focusing and realizing this God is so amazing? I just want to know more of you. I just want to worship you. I've personally often defined worship as the attitude of the heart in response to all that God is, has said, and has done. My aim personally is I want God to be the focus of my attention in everything. And I should care what I say. I should care what I sing. I should care how I act every moment of every day because God is worth my very best. No matter how difficult life is, to always come back to him and choose God, I don't understand, but you are God. And I choose to trust you. I choose to worship you. I choose to lift up your name, your truth, the promises that are in your word. And just to close, I want to share a quote from William Temple, he was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1940s, and he said this, to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God, to feed the mind with the truth of God, to purge the imagination by the beauty of God, to open the heart to the love of God, and to devote the will to the purpose of God. Worship involves our all in all. And so for us today, are we willing to put the first thing first? To choose to engage with God in worship in all things.
it's so difficult in truth because this world is a challenge to live in. But God is faithful and he is worthy of our worship. Thank you for watching this week's message. For any more information or to find out more of what we do as a church, you can contact us at info at centrechurch.uk or check out our website at www.centre-church.uk.